Cool. Welcome to Mind Controllers, a podcast about shining the light on the psychological aspects behind some of our favorite video games. I'm your host, Brandon Craw, and I'm joined by my co-host, Joe Moreno. And today we're going to be talking about the characters of Final Fantasy VII Remake. Before we get too deep into the the game and uh, the discussion here, you know, just want to give a spoiler warning uh, because we are going to be talking about a lot of plot details, a lot of things that happen to the characters and throughout the game. I just want to put a spoiler warning right off the bat. Uh, if you haven't played Final Fantasy VII and you're interested in the story and you don't want to be spoiled, you know, go ahead and play that game, watch a playthrough or do whatever you got to do and then come back to us. Um, yeah, because right. we'll definitely be don't want to ruin the experience. Yeah, we'll be here. <laughs> we don't want to ruin some of the experience of like some of the hard-hitting points of this game. And also, you know, a lot of these characters, they might resemble someone in real life, uh, but these are all fictional characters. We have no intention to like draw, draw sh- not strings, I guess, draw arrows between some of the characters here and like some real-life people. You know, we also don't have a, we're, we're not licensed therapists, so we don't have any authority to diagnose anybody. Uh, so we are going to be talking about some like diagnosis, psychological diagnoses and mental illnesses. Uh, we're kind of going to run through what it looks like when you have to put together a case study to give someone an official diagnosis. But all of this is just fictional. It's just for fun. We do not have any say in whether someone has any sort of disorder or not. So with that being said, uh, let me give you a little bit of background information about the game. I w- first want to talk about the distinction between this remake game and the original because it's something kind of interesting. Uh, you know, with the remake, as the name suggests, this game, Final Fantasy VII Remake, is a remake of the original Final Fantasy VII. And that game came out in 1997, whereas this one came out in 2020. It kind of offers its own spin on the term of remake since it's trying to do something different with the story a lot of times when a game is like remade or remastered nowadays it is putting out the same game but having it a bit more polished making the graphics look better having the combat be a bit more fine-tuned and this game is trying to change some narrative beats now The original Final Fantasy VII story was confined to just that game. And you know, there were some spinoff games, but you know, this one, it told the full story within that game. In this Final Fantasy VII Remake game, it only covers about a third of the original game and it deviates from the original's plot. And you can tell that this happens in the game because this new enemy shows up called the Whispers. And now these Whispers are these ghost-like figures, kind of look like Death Eaters from Harry Potter. And they push the party to make the same plot decisions that are found in the original game. And whenever the party decides to deviate from those decisions, the whispers show up and seemingly force this original plot onto them again. Mm -hmm. And the party tries to stray from this and make their own decisions. So uh, first spoiler here, towards the end of the game, you defeat what you think is the leader of the whispers that is kind of uh, making you do all the same stuff in the original game. I do not know what that's going to look like going forward. Maybe the whispers come back. I'm not sure. But it was kind of a neat symbolic triumph showing that they uh, fought against this predetermination and have like created their own plot line. So I thought that was pretty cool. And now for anyone who's unfamiliar with the background of the game uh, and like the story, this story follows members of an eco-terrorist group called Avalanche as they strive to take down Shinra, which is like this quote unquote evil company that harvests Mako. 
And now Mako is the lifeblood of the planet. It's like the energy that surrounds everyone and everything. And Shinra is trying to harvest the Mako by creating these Mako harvesting reactors. And wherever they make these, it drains the resources from that immediate area. So it makes a lot of these homes inhabitable. And one of these places, one of these cities is called Midgar that is built around the base of a Mako reactor. And Midgar is the home to Avalanche. Now, Avalanche is led by this eco-terrorist named Barrett. Well, I don't want to call him an eco-terrorist. I like Barrett. He's he's fighting for what he believes in. So it's led by a man named we Barrett. Stand Barrett. Yeah. We stand Barrett. <laughs> we stand Barrett. Yeah, so and Barrett is joined by um, some other Avalanche members in the game, including Tifa, Jesse, Biggs, Wedge, and now our main character, Cloud. Uh, we're going to tell you more about Cloud and Barrett later, um, since we're they're going to be part of our character analysis. But, you know, one thing every one of them has in common is that they, they've been wronged by Shinra. You know, they've had their families either killed by them or they've had to move because Shinra destroyed their original town um, because of the Mako reactor. So at the start of the game and throughout this game, you know, we follow a former soldier named Cloud, who is our main character, as he meets and joins Avalanche. He then assists them with these attacks on the Shinra Mako reactors, and eventually, like, these attacks escalate into bigger and bigger things, and spoiler number two, they do eventually take down, like, the Shinra HQ building and have an encounter with the president. Um, it's a whole thing. We'll talk about it in more detail later, um, but this interaction kind of causes Sephiroth, who is this former war hero, to start following Avalanche, uh, eventually trying to harm and stop them from what they're doing. Once again, not too sure what's going to happen with Sephiroth after this, but uh, I guess we'll see in the next game, which is called Final Fantasy VII Rebirth. And yeah, actually, Joe, do you think you could uh, tell us a bit about the gameplay, how it works, and maybe just a bit about how it is different from a more traditional JRPG game? Sure, I can even refer to the original, uh, yeah. you know, because I did play the original. Yeah. So let's see. So this one, it's an RPG with active combat, right? Japanese RPG. So that means that you're in a predefined circle that you can't you can't leave during combat. I think you can run. You can like if you like mm. hit the the limit of where you can go and just keep going. You can run away from the enemies. Um, but you're attacking them in real time, so you're like dodge rolling. You know, you're blocking as well. It's it's a little bit more freeform, I'd say, compared to the original. The original is turn based, right? And you have a little meter that fills up when you can attack in the original, right? So you're waiting, you're waiting, mm -hmm. right? This one, you're not waiting. You're, you're just attacking, right? You can do slashes, you can do punches, right? You can use magic. It's much more involved, very more, like, like I said, like, you know, freeform. And uh, it's way different. Outside of combat, you explore the world and interact with people, solving side quests along the way. It's not really an open world, like cut up into sections. Mm -hmm. So you're going from map to map, right? Going from city to city or location to location more like it yeah and th that's a little bit about the gameplay for final fantasy 7 remake cool yeah thank you because i did not play the original game and i know you did mm -hmm. pretty recently and you played this remake pretty recently as well yeah that's right yeah i played the original you know started before covid during covid i dropped it you know we were all going through like the retro game phase right like yeah. you know i was playing gamecube games and whatnot right trying to collect some more GameCube things. So I dropped it for a little bit, you know, took a couple years to come back to the original, finished it up, you know, and then, yeah, the remake dropped in 2020. I didn't play it till, you know, what, I think 2024, like 
right on the new year yeah you know finished it in a week it was really good i really enjoyed it and you're right it, it you know this is like one third of the game of the original right this is taking place in midgar you know like so that fight against the whispers the whispers don't even exist in the original right? yeah that final fight you have with sephiroth and in, in the remake that doesn't even exist in, in the original oh yeah it's wild so like to see the you know what they're they're changing up it's interesting yeah i'm really curious to see where they go with this yeah go ahead no me too um so do they what what happens then instead of that fight with Sephiroth like do they just there's nothing they just go to the next area so you go to Shinra to go save Aerith right you meet Red 13 which is like you know the 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 dog right the wolf cat whatever you know and then you just leave I think you just leave you know like you you, you go out into the world and you're like okay here you go figure out what to do so that fight with Sephiroth and the whispers does not happen and I think Sephiroth you know, I played a recent. I think Sephiroth is the one who destroys the Whispers at the end of that fight. He's like, I don't oh, need this, right? right? Which is interesting because, you know, and I was watching like a video analysis from like one of the YouTubers I usually watch. I think his name is Clemps. Mm. And he was saying, you know, that means that like now anything could happen, meaning that any character is on the chopping block, right? Yeah. So that's like, whoa, from the original, that's crazy. I wonder what they're going to do with this. Yeah. No, that that's insane. I, I love that. That idea just sounds unique and novel to me and pretty enjoyable to just like i don't know take this thing try to remake it but tell your own unique story to it like mm-hmm. yeah i i really like this idea yeah i also heard like a fan theory that the or maybe it's not maybe this was actually like confirmed like the whispers kind of represent the fans and what they want uh, right and like you know so we're getting rid of the whispers and the fans input right and come, we're just doing our own thing now which yeah respect for that yeah, yeah. gotta go for it <laughs> i mean that's awesome Cool. Yeah. So thank you for the background too. You know, now we're going to dive into our character discussion. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the main character, Cloud Strife. We're also going to be talking about another character who doesn't show up too much in this game, but plays a vital role in Final Fantasy VII named Zack Fair. Mm -hmm. And both of them are former soldiers, but Joe's going to tell us more about that in a bit. And I'm going to talk about Barrett Wallace, who's the leader of Avalanche. And I'm also going to talk about Aerith Gainsborough, who is a mysterious woman. She doesn't really have, well, now she does have an affiliation with Avalanche, but at the start of the story, she didn't. And, you know, I, I think with that being said, maybe we should just dive right into into Cloud. All right, let's do it. Yeah. So buckle up because there's a lot on Cloud, right? I mean, he's yeah. the main <laughs> character. So I got some history on him, you know, uh, born August 11th, 1986 in the village of Nibelheim father died at an early age we don't really get to see what his dad was like what that relationship was like right but we do get to see that cloud lived next to tifa which is a huge main character right um but was shunned from her friend group and according to you know looking in the wiki and everything cloud developed a superiority complex believing her friends were idiots because you know he's just more mature and different from them they don't Mm -hmm. like him because he's you know this cool tough guy he also had some you know this issues with like does tifa like me does she dislike me so at the age of nine uh, tifa fell off a uh, mount nebel i don't know what she was doing right um but she was out there you know cloud caesar you know falling tries to save her fails to save tifa tifa gets hurt cloud blames himself for not being strong he wants to get stronger you know to save the people he cares about so cloud wanted to better himself and acknowledge you know we talked a little bit about sephiroth you know, he acknowledged Sephiroth as a war hero, right? His exploits and triumphs, right? He's like, I want to be like, you know, Sephiroth, right? I want to be a great soldier like him. So he wanted to join Soldier, which is like the military group for the Shinra company, right? They're the one that enforce laws, rules, and everything, right? They have like guards everywhere, you know, carrying guns around and stuff. 
you know, so he he's hoping to become a soldier to kind of impress Tifa and be like, hey, you know, I am a strong guy, right? I'm doing this essentially for, you know, to, to show off in a way, right? So at the age of 15, he joined the Shinra Electric Power Company in the hopes of making a soldier rank. However, he did not. So he was just an infantryman. So he was just a jobber, right? He like, he, he didn't have the skills to, to make the soldier. And so he was very ashamed about that. So he never contacted Tifa or anyone in Nibelheim because he, he was ashamed. However, Cloud does meet Zack. And, and we're, we're going to get into a little bit of crisis core, right? Mr. Gongaga himself, Zack. And, you know, they begin to, there's like this whole plot about, you know, Genesis, which is like, you know, this first class soldier, kind of like on the level of Sephiroth, right? This is like shooting into like crisis core. And I know a lot of people don't like mm. this plot line, but, you know, mentioning it, right? There's like a whole other plot going on. So they're trying to defeat Genesis, right? And, and all this stuff. So uh, Cloud joins Zack and Sephiroth to investigate a damaged Mako reactor on Mount Nebel. This happens like later on in Crisis Core. This is where Sephiroth learns the truth of like, you know, he's uh, he's got Genova cells in him, right? Um, His his dad put Genova cells in him, you know, when he was being, I, I guess, like in the womb. So he learns that truth and destroys Nibelheim. You know, he, he's, he's down there in the Nibelheim mansion. I'm reading books and whatnot, the truth about what's going on. And this is kind of like the the snapping point for Sephiroth, right? And so he starts to attack the party, you know, Cloud, Zack. Cloud and Sephiroth have a brief fight, which is crazy. I don't know if you've ever seen the... I think you, I think the cutscene is in remake, but, you know, when Cloud overpowers Sephiroth, when he's impaled, when Cloud, like, has a sword straight through him, and he, like, lifts Sephiroth and just chucks him. And it's like, whoa... <sighs> I was like, what? That, that makes, it's crazy. And and this guy's not a soldier. Cloud is not a soldier. How? How is he not? You know, um, <laughs> right. wild, you know. But eventually, you know, Cloud loses consciousness. I mean, he was impaled. And eventually he's collected by, um, also Zack is unconscious as well because Sephiroth messed him up. Um, they're collected by Professor Hojo, who's like the big, like one of the big bads, right? He's an evil scientist, right? Collects them, mm-hmm. experiments on Cloud and Zack, you know, for about, I think, four years. So what Hojo is doing is... Uh, you know, injecting them with Genova cells, which are like super cells that make like super soldiers, right? Like kind of like Sephiroth, who's this all powerful, you know, guy, hoping that they'll t- turn them into Sephiroth clones or um, so that Sephiroth can control them. You know, however, uh, Zach survives because he's already been, he's, he's a soldier, right? So he's, he's already been like, he's already dealt with all this stuff, right? He has the Genova cells, I believe, you know, he, he's been experimented on before, so it doesn't do anything to him, right? However, Cloud gets a uh, Mako poisoning. Right, meaning so he's so he's like in the tube, right, where Hojo has him, and he's poisoned, so he's unconscious. So this is like Crisis Core, right? He's unconscious, so Zach is carrying him for like the next nine months once they break out. So essentially, Zach is like you know carrying Cloud around, and yeah, it, it's wild. Crisis That's Core crazy. is like you know, and, it came, and Crisis Core came after the original. Right? It was on PSP. So there's a lot, there's a lot to cover, but you know, with Cloud. That's a little bit of his background and, you know, who Zack is as well, which we're going to get into that. So currently during the game, right, the remake and the OG, right, Cloud is 21 when, this, when the bombing mission occurs. You know how he's like on the train, he appears, right, mm-hmm. jumps off the train, you know, we're going to help Avalanche for a price, of course, right? He's a mercenary, so he yeah. pretends not to care. Or maybe he really doesn't care at the moment. You know, he goes with Avalanche, does what he needs to for the money, right? So planting bombs at Mako reactors. Um, and you explained what Mako was, the lifeblood, right? So, mm-hmm. and also in the remake, as you, you know, play as Cloud, you, you kind of see him experience like headaches, right? And visions of Sephiroth. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And also like, I think there's a memory of him being impaled, right? That's like kind of like the post-traumatic stress, right? It's kind of like, he, he almost died. Yeah. I'm surprised he didn't. 
you know, have you seen Sephiroth's like sword thing is like huge, right? Crazy. No idea how Cloud survived that. So eventually he meets up with, you know, Tifa and Aerith and the Final Fantasy VII plot, you know, continues. Yeah. Right? So a little bit about his personality. He's stubborn, especially at the beginning. I don't know if you noticed, he's like closed off, reserved, dismissive. He doesn't care. He, he's he's in it for the money. And of course, he's like edgy, right? He doesn't, he doesn't give a shit. I love that. I love that about him. And to see him open up over the time, over, you know, the point of the game, right? His interactions with Aerith, you know, eventually opens up you know do you remember like the high five scene where like you know they're high-fiving each other after like the robot arm stuff and cloud like actively like goes for a high five but eric is like she doesn't know what's going on right because cloud is very closed off yeah he's embarrassed when she's all like she didn't like give him the high five he's like oh never mind that was nothing right she's like were you about to and he's like no 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 don't worry about it right (laughs) and so like you know with eric being playful like it kind of opens cloud up yeah and so you see him coming from you know coming off from being stubborn and closed off right he starts to care, right? You know, he still has like the, I'll do this for a price kind of mentality, right? But you, know, you can tell he starts to care about, you know, Barrett, right? Tifa, even like Wedge, Big, you know, Jesse. So there's a transition there. And I really enjoy that. Uh, do you have any thoughts on Cloud before I start the case study? Yeah, no, I, I think that that summarized it pretty well. I uh, also love seeing like little hints of personality like leak out eventually. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as you get to know him a bit better. Um, yeah, I, I talk about that as well with Barrett, who's another he has a similar vibe where mm-hmm. he's his personality comes out as you get to know him, but his like initial personality is a bit more jarring than Clouds. Clouds is like you said, dismissive and he doesn't care, he's stoic, yeah. right? But he yeah. cares. He cares. You know he, he does. Yeah. He does. I, I didn't know uh some of the background stuff that you described as well, so that was pretty fascinating. Yeah, definitely. And we're going to get into Zach as well. So I'll be covering a lot of crisis core stuff. So, you know, that'll be interesting. Right. I love Zach. He, he, he's kind of like the opposite of cloud. Cause Zach is more like, you know, positive upbeat, but we'll get to him. Like Ichiban and Kiryu. Oh, Ichiban and Kiryu. Yeah. We'll get to that <laughs> at the end of the podcast. I can't wait to yeah. talk about, um, like a dragon with you. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. Go ahead and, uh, I might not have described this at the top, but what we are going to do is like give the background and information for the characters, which is what Joe just did for Cloud right now. And then we're going to do a case study on them or like a case study write up, which is like a kind of like a formal thing in like the psych world, or at least it was when we were, at we were in grad school, yeah. where you kind of aggregate all of their background information together to detail the attributes or characteristics of potential psych diagnoses or psychological disorders so we're going to do that here with cloud or joe's going to do that here with cloud and then we'll talk about some potential like diagnoses that cloud might suffer from yeah and just a heads up you know uh we did this in the persona podcast as well but you know we're using a western lens of psychology you know and this is a japanese game right and then you know cloud obviously a soldier right he's not going to be coming into the therapist office or maybe he would I don't know. Yeah. Maybe so, you know. <laughs> maybe after the end of the third Final Fantasy VII <laughs> maybe. game. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, right? So, yeah. So, there's a lot of stuff like, you know, we're doing this for fun, right? Don't take it too seriously. Yeah. So, just want to say that real quick and uh, let's jump into the case study for Cloud. So, you're going to hear a lot of the same info, right? But I have it, you know, all aggregated, all put together here. So, yeah, let's just get into it. So, Cloud, you know, is a 21-year-old uh, soldier, according to him, from Nibelheim. You know, Cloud appears stoic and silent. He discusses childhood, you know, and reports a conflicted childhood. He acknowledged that he was very lonely uh, and he was very different from the other kids growing up in Nibelheim. Though he did have one friend by the name of Tifa who he attempted to befriend. You know, they had like some kind of history going on. Uh, Yet her friend group didn't approve of Cloud, you know, shunned him. 
according to Cloud, there was a time where he was uh, he attempted to save Tifa from falling off Mount Nebel. And at that time, Cloud was following her and was unsuccessful in saving her, and they both fell. Cloud noted that he wanted to get stronger, you know, but was angry for himself because Tifa got hurt. You know, so at the age of 15, mm-hmm. he joined uh, Shinra in the hopes of becoming the soldier. You know, that's his way of getting stronger, right? He had a purpose. I want to get stronger. I can do that if I join the military, right? Soldier, right? Which, you know, is part of the Shinra company. And soldier is like the prestigious rank, right? That's like number one rank. That's, that's what you want to go for. Right. Mm-hmm. However, Cloud never becomes that. He, he, you know, he's an infantryman, right? Which is noble still, right? But to him, it causes a lot of shame because his goal was to become a soldier. Uh, during his time as an infantryman, you know, he met Sephiroth and Zack. And this was before Sephiroth went, you know, insane, essentially, right? But, you know, during the attack on Nibelheim, you know, perpetrated by Sephiroth, Cloud witnessed the death of his mother in a fire, you know, in Nibelheim, which, again, caused by Sephiroth. Uh, according to Cloud, he he rushed to confront Sephiroth, you know, and inflicted a, and Sephiroth inflicted a grave wound and impaled Cloud. And Cloud was able to defend himself against Sephiroth, but was incapacitated. You know, Cloud doesn't remember what happened after. However, he did detail the death of his friend Zack. Cloud describes intrusive thoughts pertaining to Sephiroth. Some of these thoughts resemble disassociative flashbacks, and Cloud swears that they are occurring in real time. So there are points in the game, right, mm. um, where you know he thinks he sees Sephiroth. Right. And he's like in pain because of these headaches. Right. Um, And this is really just the Genova cells, I believe. Right. So let's put that in the back burner. Right. This is him in therapy, essentially. Right. You know, so Cloud experiences a lot of anger and fear when confronted by these flashbacks. And he's known to detach from others. You know, when he sees Sephiroth, right, maybe Tifa and Barrett are hanging out. Right. But he just focuses on the flashback or what he's seeing in front of him. Right. So everything else kind of melts to the wayside. Like it just goes away. Right. And he just sees Sephiroth. So he detaches himself from, you know, everyone else and like even reality to a point. And Cloud encourage, you know, this being a JRPG, you know, a, a game, right? Of course, he's going to be engaging in reckless behavior, right? Fighting enemies, fighting soldiers, whatever, you know. But I just wanted to say, you know, there's a lot going on with Cloud. And yeah. It seems like his concentration isn't the best, right? He's got a lot of like uh, flashbacks and uh, loses awareness a lot. So that kind of brings us to to the diagnosis. And so let's get into post-traumatic stress disorder. And I'm going to go through like what the DSM provides us with and the information it gives us. So like criteria A or criteria one, right, for PTSD is exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence in one or more of the following. So obviously he was stabbed, right? Yeah. He saw his mom die. He, he, Yeah, he's directly experiencing these traumatic events. So we don't even have to go to... You know, the other criteria in uh, criteria A, like he already meets that. Let's go on to B, which is the presence of one or more of the following intrusion symptoms associated with the traumatic event beginning after the traumatic event. Right. So this is his like, you know, uh, distressing memories of the traumatic event because he has a flashback where, you know, he gets impaled right by Sephiroth. Dissociative flashback reactions that he has, you know, when he's like losing touch with reality and just he's Sephiroth. Right? And like Sephiroth is confronting him and just like egging them on basically like you know come fight me right and that kind of stuff when it's not really happening yeah and so that already meets criteria b right we just need two of those and he meets those so for criteria c there is persistence avoidance of stimuli associated with the traumatic events beginning after the traumatic event occurred as evidenced by one or both of the following he meets avoidance um, because he's trying to avoid distressing memories thoughts or feelings about the you know associated traumatic event he doesn't want to remember Mm -hmm. It's the Genova cells, I, I would say, that, you know, are kind of like pushing these memories forward or these thoughts forward. So he's trying to avoid it because also like 
you know, he has like these headaches, right? You see it in the game. He's like holding his head. He yeah. looks like he's in pain. I don't want that. I would want to avoid that, right? <laughs> and moving on to criteria D, you know, negative alterations in cognitions and mood associated with the traumatic event. So what this looks like is like, you know, persistent negative uh, emotional states, right? There's some fear, some horror, some anger, some guilt and shame in these flashbacks, right? You know, even even like, you know, he, he looks scared, you know, or like he looks like he wants ready to fight, you know. And also, like I mentioned, he's, he's got like feelings of detachment, right? He detaches in the moment when, you know, those memories of Sephiroth come up or or the flashbacks or, you know, whatever's going on. So let's move on to criteria E, which is the marked alterations in arousal and a reactivity associated with traumatic events uh, beginning or worsening after the traumatic event occurred. And so what kind of behaviors are there, right? Reckless. Of course, you know, he's fighting enemies, right? He's, he carries a big buster sword. It's a giant sword, right? He just destroys things with it. I mean, that's reckless, right? And obviously he has problems with concentration, right? Because he can be like, I don't know if there's a time where he's like in mid-conversation and just like he, he gets hit by a flashback or something and it just like, yeah. all drops, right? It's like he's in that moment with Sephiroth or whatever's going on. And this is occurring after all the traumatic events, right? So criteria F is duration of the disturbance is more than one month, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Cloud's been dealing with this for a while, way more than a month, you know. So, yeah, I decided, you know, hey, PTSD with a little bit of derealization, you know, saying like what that means is essentially, you know, uh, reality is a little wonky for him. It's not. At- mm-hmm. um, so there's a little of that flavor into it, into the PTSD for uh, Cloud. So, again, you know, this is just a case study. You know, we're doing this for fun, right? Um and this is what my thoughts are, you know, the PTSD. Yeah. I mean, any thoughts on you, uh, on, on your, you know, end over there? Yeah. Um, no, I, I think it's funny cause as we're, we're only two episodes in, but it feels like PTSD is a reoccurring thing with yeah. a lot of these characters. Uh, you know, it feels like a lot of video games will develop the character, write the character to have like these traumatic moments in mind to mm-hmm. motivate them to do more. Um, and you know, we're going to, I'm I'm going to be talking about PTSD again uh, later on this episode. Yeah, one thing I wanted to uh, just kind of touch on real quick as well, because you said that with derealization, and this is like something that I feel like maybe not too many people who are not in psychology will know about, is how like you can give a diagnosis, like such as post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and then add like this modifier to it. Mm-hmm. In this case, that's the derealization. Um, so there's like some symptoms of something else that doesn't quite fit into that original diagnosis of, in this case, PTSD, that you, you can just add on to the diagnosis. So whoever is taking care of them can be aware of like this other symptom that they are right. having. Right. Keep it in mind. Yeah, that was, yeah. 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 But no, yeah, it sounds like Cloud's got PTSD. Yeah, definitely. Sure. Especially yeah. with the with the headache flashback thing. So, who's next? Like, uh, I'll go ahead and uh, talk about Barrett. <laughs> Speaking of PTSD, you know, so some background on Barrett, and a lot of these, a lot of the background for these characters also is not in the video game. So we had to yeah. seek out resources elsewhere to learn about it. Thankfully, there's a, a wiki fan page on Final Fantasy VII that aggregated a lot of these people's backgrounds and everything. And that was like a huge lifesaver, at least for me when I was writing my, my oh, yeah. of this. I, I can echo that. Yeah, that's where I got yeah, most so. of my info because <laughs> these games are huge, right? And then like there's so much yeah. extra stuff out there like books, other games, right? I think even movies or whatever. Yeah. I know Final Fantasy VII Advent Children. <laughs> like, that's crazy. 
have to go watch a movie to learn more about the character. But yeah, so with that being said, uh, let me let me tell you about our leader of the eco-terrorists here, Barrett Wallace. So, um, you know, Barrett is a major character in Final Fantasy VII Remake. He's the leader of the eco-terrorist group known as Avalanche. And uh, like I said at the beginning, Avalanche's main goal is to prevent the Shinra Electric Power Company from using Mako, which is, once again, the energy life source of the planet. So in this current moment, Barrett is a 35-year-old male who lost his right arm during a tragic incident uh, and now has a gun instead of his right arm. So, you know, throughout the game, uh, gameplay-wise, mechanics-wise, he's mostly using ranged attacks, but he can get some attachments onto his uh, gun hand to to make him a bit more uh, for melee combat. But mm-hmm. He's got like a wrecking yeah, ball um, or something like that. Little, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, Barrett is also a large, muscular, and intimidating-looking man who has tattoos and a metal band around his waist, and he also has two dog tags around his neck. Once again, that's what he currently looks like. So a bit of his background story before the events of this game. Uh, He was born, or grew up at least, in his hometown called Corel, and he married a woman named Myrna, and she suffered from an undisclosed illness that we don't really know too much about. Because of his desperation to save his wife, uh, he convinced his childhood friend, Dine, to cooperate with Shinra to build a Mako reactor north of their village. So this was kind of before Barrett had this like r- these radical thoughts. So, you know, some decades passed. Barrett and Dine helped Avalanche after this Mako reactor was built. Uh, you know, some decades passed, and Barrett and Dine eventually ran into Avalanche before they were a part of it. And they helped them in occupying the Shinra Mako reactor. And they believe they destroyed it. So then Shinra, or they did something to it. And Shinra retaliated by burning down Barrett's hometown of Corel, which obviously caused chaos, killed many people, including his wife, Myrna. Barrett and Dime then returned to the town because they were away while it was built. I think they were still occupying the Mako reactor. And when they returned, they were shot by Shinra agents who were trying to kill them. And unfortunately, Dine was killed and left behind a daughter. Her name is Marlene. And then Barrett was severely injured, hence losing his right arm. Barrett then rescued Marlene and vowed to take care of her as if she were his own, as a like kind of like a dying wish from Dean, or just something to honor his, his friend's legacy. So Barrett and Marlene, they stumbled on hard times and they wandered from town to town before eventually arriving in Midgar, which is now the home of Avalanche. And uh, they met several members of Avalanche there and they eventually joined the crew and Barrett worked his way up to the leadership position. So throughout this game, though, we meet Barrett during the first attack at the very start of the game on this Mako reactor. You know, this attack kind of goes unexpectedly well, draws the attention of Shinra, and then Barrett kind of immediately is planning another attack. So they attack another reactor, and this one, they was kind of like set up like a trap Mm -hmm. um, where Shinra knew they were coming and they were trying to kill Avalanche live on air in front of everybody, but... Thankfully, you know, Barrett kind of inspires everyone. They fight through and he eventually saves Cloud, who is hanging on the edge of this like Mako reactor plate. These are like huge towering structures that 
I don't know, thousands of feet in the air. So if one of those plates fall, it will destroy anything underneath. And in this mm-hmm. case, Midgar is like right underneath there. So this is why they don't want to fully destroy the Mako reactor in this case, but they wanted to do some damage to it. You know, they they eventually, unfortunately, uh, fail to prevent Shinra from detaching. I, I believe it was Shinra, right? That was like they wanted to detach the plate. Yeah, to destroy um, Section 7 or something like that, right? Yeah, because that's where Avalanche was. Was, yeah. Avalanche was in Section 7 of Midgar, yeah. so well, at least this section. Because uh, in the remake, you know, um, they're like, oh, yeah, Barrett's part of the Avalanche, right? But that's the radical part of Avalanche. In the original, mm. you just Avalanche is just, it's just Barrett and his team, right? In the remake, there's, like, different divisions. Oh, yeah. yes. I didn't know. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Because, yeah, Avalanche is like a big terrorist, eco-terrorist mm-hmm. group that spread across like multiple towns and cities. And you don't even really know about them all or see them all. You just you just see Barrett and his crew. Right. They do come and help you during one fight, I think, right? Yeah. In the beginning of the game, of the remake, at least. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But, yeah, so, you know, Shinra is trying to, you know, take them down. So they, they drop a plate onto them. And, you know, Barrett once again fears that his kind of like radical movements have cost some lives and killed people he swore to protect. Thankfully, I'm like reading through this and realizing like I just skipped through a bunch of like plot stuff because it's big plot stuff, but it doesn't involve Barrett. So I didn't write it down. But (laughs) yeah. But yeah, eventually Aerith gets captured and sent to the Shinra building. Um, so then Barrett, Cloud, and Tifa go and try to break her out and rescue her. And there, you know, we kind of hear a quote from Barrett about how these people are not without sin and must accept their complicity if they were to blow up the Shinra building here, which is kind of like Barrett's goal right now is just to destroy everything. So, you know, they, they later free Aerith, thankfully, and uh, another new character who you mentioned already named Red 13 right. um, from a research lab that was at the, like, kind of within the Shinra building. They kind of stumble their way up. They're, like, escaping, and they stumble their way up the building, eventually getting to Shinra's president. And the president's, like, dangling from a ledge. Of course, Barrett sees this. He wants to kill him. Mm-hmm. But Tifa and Aerith, you know, convince them to spare the president. So... Barrett kind of becomes a better person now. Not sure exactly what he was thinking at this point, but Barrett spares the president under the condition that the president admits that Shinra was behind the destroyed Sector 7 plate Mm -hmm. that fell onto Midgar and not Avalanche. The president, of course, doesn't like this, so grabs a gun, threatens to shoot Barrett, but then Sephiroth appears, kills the president, and kills Barrett. Mm-hmm. But the whispers come in. This is interesting because this is like one of the few times they don't try to fight off the whispers, but the whispers come and heal Barrett. Right. Well, heal his time to die. It wasn't his time to die. His death was not supposed to happen now in the plot. So they let it happen and Barrett's revived. But then Barrett later helps Cloud fight off the whispers and Sephiroth, but then Sephiroth eventually escapes. But I think after taking down Shinra, Barrett then vows to continue to fight Sephiroth as an, because an enemy of the planet is an enemy of his. A little bit about like Barrett's personality. You know, he, he has this giant personality, intimidating presence, but that kind of shies away once you get to know him. You know, this was pretty apparent when we first meet Cloud 
you know, he doesn't trust Cloud. He just kind of mm-hmm. speaks to him in a cold manner, sees him as just an, another person, a mercenary who just wants the money. So he doesn't really right. consider him like a person. But eventually, you know, he warms up to Cloud. We see moments in which he actually like enjoys speaking to Cloud and, and is happy of their friendship. They become besties later on. Right? Yeah, I know. They're like they're, they're, they become yeah. best friends. A lot of his like personality, a lot of this sense of justice of his is fueled by his destruction of his home, um, which he has now twice witnessed. You know, we saw Shinra burn down Karel. We saw Shinra crush Midgar. So obviously he, he has this resentment towards them and wants to destroy them at all costs. Uh, but you know that these might be some like negative traits of his, but he's also a very passionate and emotional person, definitely towards the protection of the planet. According to this wiki, he has a background on planetology and he knows the history of the ancients, which are like, I guess the people who created this world. So he, prior to all of this Shinra stuff, you know, was already passionate about protecting the planet. Um, so it makes sense now that he sees Shinra destroying the planet. He obviously sees them as his enemy. I think he also carries a bit of resentment around with him because Shin, he, you know, he helped Shinra start up this base in Corel, um, which ultimately led to his destruction. He wasn't sure of how like this was going to play out. He was so desperate to save his wife that he was willing to do anything and didn't realize that what he was doing was bringing in like this evil into his home that would eventually lead to its destruction. So he carries that burden with him. And I think that fuels a lot of what he does and his motivations in this game. And at least to me made pretty interesting character. And um, I low key love Barrett. So I'm glad I was able to do a little deep dive on him. But yeah, uh, I was going to go ahead and talk about the case study. But Joe, is there anything you, I don't know. I felt like I talked a lot about his background here. I know in the original, I think Dine is still alive or something like that. I'm not too sure. Or maybe not again. Oh, right. Okay. That makes sense. When I was reading about his, on the wiki, it said seemingly dies. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll leave it at that then. I don't, I don't want to, <laughs> in case Dine comes up later, like I didn't want to well, spoil it for myself, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. I like, mean, spoiler warning, yeah. right? Um, I know. We'll, we'll see what the remake does. I'm I'm interested to see what they change, right? Um, now that the whispers are gone, so now that OG Final Fantasy VII is in canon in remake or whatever, yeah, we'll see what they do. But yeah, no, Barrett's a really interesting character. Really, at first I was like, huh, I don't like how he's treating my boy Cloud, right? But then you know, yeah, it opens up, right? He's a really cool dude, you know, cares about his daughter, right? Um, mm-hmm. he's a great guy. Does everything for Marlene. He's he, he's got a heart of gold. He's got a very loud, passionate heart. And sometimes, you know, he has to be overly protective with it. And that's why he comes across as like this powerful man who tries to intimidate people. And I get it. Uh, So with that being said, once again, we'll do a case study here. Cool. Now for the uh, case study for Barrett. Barrett is a 35-year-old male who is the leader of Avalanche, which is an eco-terrorist organization whose goal is to take down Shinra. When he was younger, Barrett took care of his wife, Myrna, who suffered from an illness. While seeking assistance for his wife's health, he helped Shinra move into his hometown of Karel, a decision he later regretted and tried to reverse by taking down the Shinra-Mako reactor. This led to angering Shinra, which resulted in Shinra burning down Karel and shooting Barrett and Barrett's friend, Dine. Barrett lost his right arm as a result, and he took in Dine's daughter, Marlene, as his own. Barrett and Marlene then suffered from homelessness as they traveled from town to town, eventually moving into Midgar, which is a town made at the base of a Shinra-Mako reactor. There, Barrett joined Avalanche and worked his way up to the leader position after many years. 
As leader of Avalanche, Barrett planned and executed several attacks on Shinra's facilities, including Mako reactors and Shinra's base of operations. Barrett's eco-terrorist activities caused damage and potentially death to Shinra's employees and others who were associated with Shinra. Barrett views these killings as an unfortunate consequence of liberating the planet from Shinra's evil. He had the opportunity to kill the president of Shinra, but ultimately spared his life after being convinced by his peers. Um, now Barrett will continue his fight in this time against Sephiroth and defend the people of Avalanche. So much like Cloud, after reading this background, it seemed to me that Barrett also suffered from a post-traumatic stress disorder, and his symptoms manifested themselves in different ways in Cloud. Slightly different. For the first criterion, which is an exposure to trauma, you know, we saw Barrett have a traumatic event occur to him, which alone would be enough to move on to criteria B, but we also see it occur to someone close to him, literally in front of his face, in his presence as well, um, which was like the death of his friend Dine. For criteria B, we also see a presence of intrusive symptoms, and, th and this one might be a bit of a stretch, but seems like he might experience prolonged psychological distress and exposed to anything related to Shinra. It kind of seems like he he just not really shuts down, but like he gets angry. Mm -hmm. You could tell that it causes him a lot of hurt. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like a triggering word for him. So he tries to, well, he doesn't necessarily avoid talking about Shinra, but you can tell that there is something there that has kind of influenced his behavior in this way. Uh, you know, we also see for the next criteria, avoidance of stimuli, and also another bit of a stretch, but might assume he avoids talking about the situation. You know, like, for example, I didn't know about any of this stuff until I, I went through the wiki mm. uh, about his home burning down and his wife dying. He definitely doesn't talk about that in the game. No Right. That's OG yeah. info. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so uh, it, it, this is all information that he is kind of held. He doesn't want to share. And I think he avoids talking about it because it's a traumatic event for him. Very painful event. Um, for the next criteria, negative alterations in cognitions and mood. You know, we see him blaming himself for allowing Shinra to come into Corel and the resulting destruction. So there's a lot of guilt there. But then we also see a kind of persistent negative emotional state of anger at seemingly anyone related to Shinra or, or kind of just anyone he doesn't trust. You know, like right. we already said, he has this, this shell up, his walls up at, at all the time now because he doesn't trust anyone. He's afraid of what that trust might bring. So a lot of these characters have to earn Barrett's trust and ease into him. For the next criteria, like marked alterations in reactivity due to the traumatic event. Here we see reckless and destructive behavior against Shinra. We, we see him behaving differently, and, and one of those ways is through this reckless and destructive behavior. And we also see hypervigilance, like, in his desire to destroy Shinra. It seems like with, like, hypervigilance, we can see him, I don't know, just kind of taking the stand. I mean, like, he's, he's an eco-terrorist, and he's, like, trying to defend his people, and mm -hmm. he is attacking them and that, to me that seemed like a sign of hypervigilance by by like attacking the people that have hurt him previously but maybe that could just be my own take on that word i think all of these criteria together and i think the final criteria of we see these symptoms persist for longer than one month mm -hmm. uh with that you know this has happened years ago and a lot of these personality traits that he has gained since this traumatic event you know they, they're still with him they, they still occur 
he is still just like a very angry and kind of destructive person. Putting that all together, it seems like he suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder. But one kind of interesting thing that wasn't a disorder that I, I wanted to bring into this discussion was I, I looked up studies because I was curious. I'm like, is there any sort of connection between a quote unquote eco terrorist and any psychological disorders? Mm. And according to some study, it was a peer reviewed study. It wasn't just like some random article. There seems to be an association between depressive symptoms and sympathy for violent protesters and terrorism. There's also another study that finds a significant association between antisocial personality disorder and extremist opinions. But according to this literature review, you know, these studies should be taken with a grain of salt because they might have a poor methodological quality. But I found it interesting that there is, uh, especially this antisocial personality disorder and extremist opinions. I feel like with antisocial personality disorder, you see people it's kind of in its name, antisocial. They kind of don't, or in layman's terms, they kind of just don't care about other people. You kind of, seems to be what Barrett has at times when he's just like willing to blow up a building and not caring who's right. in there. He doesn't care for the consequences. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Barrett Wallace. That's our that's our good old buddy, Barrett. Great leader. By the end of this game, we see his walls come down and we see the person that he, he actually is, which is just someone with a huge heart yeah he he's kind of scary when you first meet i do love him like he's he's one of my favorite characters but uh i'm curious to know more about this zach guy who i've heard a lot about but since i haven't played the og games don't really know too much okay yeah so let's get into zach so instead of and and just the heads up you know instead of doing a case study for zach there's not too much info right so you know we're going to talk a little bit about the culture of military like military culture essentially right um Mm, okay cloud and zach are both military so before we get into that, um, let's talk a little bit about Zach. You know, he was born in 1984 in Gongaga. That's why he called, you know, there's a line in Crisis Core where he goes, me, Gongaga, right? And I think that's like, the funniest huh. thing ever because it's such a funny sounding like name for a town, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's why I call him Mr. <laughs> Gongaga, right? Um, I know you I, said it earlier and I thought, I thought that was like an anime. Uh, no, yeah, I figured you'd be lost. <laughs> so I'm like, you know what? Let me explain it, right? So he was born in 1984. He left for Midgar at the age of 13 and joined Shinra. Not too much about his uh, past or like childhood. We're going to Crisis Core territory, which is like a game on the PSP. Now it's on, you know, modern consoles. So Zach trained under someone called Angeal, which was like his mentor in Soldier. So when we meet Zach, he's like a soldier second class. Eventually you get the promotion to first class. He has to wipe out a whole enemy base, prove that he deserves a promotion. And there's a lot of shenanigans with, again, I think I mentioned Genesis earlier, which is like, you know, kind of like a another soldier, powered up soldier. So he goes, Genesis goes bad, right? And so Zach starts to work with Sephiroth and Angeal. Eventually Angeal like kind of disappears. He's kind of gone. So Sephiroth helps out Zach to look for him. They find Angeal, again, his mentor. Something about monsters attacking, right? And Angeal believes he himself is a monster because you know how Sephiroth has the one wing? Oh, Angeal yeah. has it as well. And so does Genesis. But when Angeal sees it, you know, he's like, I have the one wing. He believes he's a monster. So eventually, you know, Crisis Core happens. Zack meets Aerith and they have a budding relationship. You know, they start dating eventually. Eventually, again, Crisis Core happens, right? You know, Angeal becomes a monster, actually. Like weird dog hybrid type wolf animal thing that zach has to fight and that actually is angeal and so zach has to defeat him meaning that you know he kills his own mentor 
actually, so the Buster Sword, you know, the giant sword that Cloud carries around. Yeah, that's actually Angeal's sword. Oh, yeah. So the mentor for Zach, you know, that's his sword. He passes it on to Zach, and Zach passes it on to Cloud. You know, it's like don't let your dreams die out, right? It's symbolic. Mm. So when Angeal dies, he gives it to Zach. When Zach dies, you know, he gives it to Cloud. So eventually, Zach meets Cloud on like a mission, right? They get along. Nibelheim occurs, which, you know, Sephiroth goes insane, you know, learns the truth, destroys Nibelheim. Yeah. Zack is captured by Hojo again. So there's a lot of stuff, you know, that we covered. He's experimented on. Eventually, Zack does break out and rescues Cloud. Crisis Core happens again, and they fight Genesis, which is, again, some dude we don't really care about. I know the fan base doesn't really like him either. Genesis? Yeah, Genesis, yeah. And okay. I'm like, okay, sure. You know, and I played this game, like, a long time ago on PSP, so... I had to go into the wiki to like remember, watch some video analysis and stuff. You know, I'm like, okay, yeah, this yeah. is making sense again. So eventually, Zach learns that he was captured for four years by Hojo, and the reason he he knows this is that uh, he receives letters from Aerith. I think one of the one of the what are they called? The guys in the black suit, you know, like the fancy suits. Um, what are their names? Because they do work the Turks. There we go, the Turks. That's what they're called. Oh, yeah. right. Okay. So there's this guy named Song, right, in Crisis Core. And eventually he hands this stack of letters to Zack. Like, it's Aerith sending letters for the past four years. Oh, yeah. Right? And so Zack's like, oh, crap, we were gone for four years. We were captured for four years. Time to go to Midgar. And so, you know, he's carrying Cloud. He's unconscious, right, because of the Mako poisoning from the experiments. So he's protecting Cloud, right? He's fighting his way through a lot of soldiers. Eventually we hit Zack's final stand, which is like right in front of Midgar, like right outside of Midgar. You know, it's still in the open world, right? It's still the world map, essentially, where it's just all of Shinra against Zack. You know, this one guy, yeah, he's a soldier. You know, he's really powerful, but it's like hundreds and hundreds of like infantrymen, helicopters, grenaders and all this stuff, right? So in Crisis Core, this is Zack's final stand. Like, he's gone. Like, he, you know, he's killed by three soldiers, essentially, because he fought through so many of them. He's exhausted. Yeah. So he dies. You know, and eventually Cloud wakes up from the poisoning and he's like, what happened? What happened? You know, um, and Zack still alive, passes the sword to him and then dies. But of course, in the remake, you know, at the final part, we see that Zack made it through his final yeah. end, which I was like, what? I don't think I was spoiled on that, you know, because I recently played <laughs> the remake. And I was like, yeah. whoa. And, and I was like, oh, what are they going to do with this? Right? Like, what, what yeah. change? Yeah, so that's a little bit about Zach. His his personality is upbeat, optimistic, enthusiastic. He's restless. He's referred to as um Zach the puppy by his mentor, right? Because he's just full of energy. He just wants to get mm. going, you know, easy going. He's all over the place. But eventually, you know, after of course his mentor dies, things happening in Crisis Core, he kind of matures, right? He's still upbeat and optimistic, but he kind of calms down, right? He mm. he has a more like clear head and more mature, and he ends up caring for Cloud for like nine months. Cloud is unconscious. He's like dragging him, you know, making sure he's okay, protecting him. Zach is a good guy. You know, he really is. Love yeah. that character. He's like the opposite of Cloud, right? Because Cloud's more. Yeah, yeah. Off, it right? seems like it. Very, yeah. very stoic, right? But Zach, no, he's not. You know, I love both Cloud and Zach. They're really cool. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Any any thoughts on, on your end? I wasn't sure of when Crisis Core happens in the timeline. Mm hmm. Like, that's before the this events of Final Fantasy VII, yeah. right? It's like right okay. before. Yeah, right before Cloud shows up on his, you know, his epic stance on the train when he jump, does a front flip or whatever. 
Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, this is like right before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it takes like over, you know, a couple years, right? But when Crisis Core ends, it's like right before Final Fantasy VII picks up. Oh, got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know much about Zack. And my first interaction with him was seeing him in that cutscene in Final Fantasy VII Remake. So uh, that part didn't hit me quite as much as I think it, it hit you since you, you knew his yeah. fate. Yeah, once again, really interesting to see what they're going to do with now that we're at this point where it's clear that it is deviated from the original game. Yeah, I'm I'm curious to see what happens. You know, he, he's alive. He's going to go meet Eris. Like, what does this mean? You know, I think it's going to be yeah. a good time. Not going to lie. And he was higher up in the ranking because like, you said he was a soldier. Yeah, well. so he was first class, I believe. Okay, so he was like a better soldier than, than Cloud. Right. Point. I mean, Cloud never made soldier. Yeah, he never even made soldier rank. I'm interested to see what you found between like the like some of the research because we're not doing a case study for Zach. Correct. Yeah. So, yeah, let me get into it. So, you know, just that, some info on the culture of the military. This is like a textbook we had to read back uh, in grad school in one of the marriage family therapist classes, mm. you know, giving counseling out to to military folk. And I work with military folk. You know, I work with uh, veterans as well. So I was like, you know what, this might be a little bit interesting. Let me go back into this textbook, you know, see what I can pull out. So essentially they're talking about, you know, the culture of the military, the warrior society. It's an authoritarian structure, right? It's strict and obedient. They will tell you what to do and they will break you and they will make you. That's mm-hmm. the military. You don't have any freedom in the military. You are supposed to get up at a certain time, eat at a certain time, go to sleep at a certain time, right? There's some leeway here and there, especially I think uh, to rank, you know? Yeah, it's very like authoritarian and so it's interesting because we see zach and cloud kind of come from like backgrounds where you know they were just kids right things were happening it sounds like they both didn't have much structure in their life and you know shinra as a military company is going to provide that structure so i kind of wish we would see a little bit more about cloud and zach in their childhood to see you know what's the correlation here what's the connections we can make right but it's interesting that both of uh both of these guys you know were like hey the military right they got into a, you know, a structured warrior society. In the military, rank structure affects families, you know, creates distance, uh, not just between the military, but the civilian world itself. So, like, throughout the game, you know, throughout Remake, you'll see Cloud referring to things like, you know, he, he's a military guy. Tries not to get close to people, right? Keeps his distance because he knows that, hey, at any time, anyone can just die right especially with what they're doing attacking the mako reactors fighting enemies fighting shinra which is like the whole military so don't get too close in the military there's a commitment to it typically a commitment to one's unit and the mission and its members so there's a part in crisis core where um he's like storming an enemy enemy base you know the wutai i don't know if you're familiar with the wutai uh, they're mentioned here and there in uh re- yeah just barely you know, and the Wutai are like, hey, you're working for Shinra. They're the bad guys. Like, they're terrible. Why are you doing this? Why are you wiping us out, right? Zack doesn't question it because he has loyalty. He was fed this information like, hey, you know, you, what you're doing is noble, which you should be proud of it. Don't question it. Yeah. And this is kind of like the, you know, the, the message of the military as well. And I'm not trying to, like, cast dispersions on the U.S. military or whatever, right? But it's like we're, they're sold this message. Right. And you're, you know, not everyone believes it, but Zach certainly believed it. Right. What he was doing was Mm -hmm. right. You know, it was a mission. Don't question it. Service members are often required to spend long hours on the job and are part of a tight team, almost like a second family. Right. So this is Zach's relationship to Angeal, his mentor. Like they get really close. Right. 
you know, they're more than friends, right? They're, it's his mentor. It's, it looks like they're family at points in Crisis Core. Of course, and then we're hitting the concept of honor in the military. What does honor mean? So there's a part in, uh, in Crisis Core where Angeal shares his perspective on what honor is and how to protect honor. And it's like the most important thing. And he passes it on to Zach. And Zach carries that message as well. There's a part in Crisis Core where he's like telling his fellow soldiers like to always protect your soldier honor. Protect your honor, you know, protect your comrades. This is a message like, again, military, they're going to give you this, right? Protect those guys that you, you know, your comrades, protect them at all costs. Right? It's interesting because when you see Cloud open up and get closer to Barrett, Aerith, Tifa, right? Again, Cloud is a military guy. and He'll do anything to protect them, right? You see that. You see that growing in Remake. The concept of honor comes into the picture because to inflict suffering on an adversary, a warrior must not identify with the adversary or feel remorse for the suffering of the adversary. So this kind of goes into a little bit of, you know, with Cloud, right? I mean, he's, you know, and, and even Zach, you know, they're fighting their soldier, fellow soldiers, but they have a belief and they're upkeeping that belief, uh, upkeeping that honor as well. And, you, you know, even though Barrett isn't part of a, a military group, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he, he, he protects his he's own group as well. Militant. Yeah, militant, right? So that even applies to, to Barrett as well. So one thing I want to talk about, about in the military is uh, the use of shame. And this goes into Cloud because... Cloud joined the military, you know, because he was ashamed of how weak he was. He wasn't strong enough to save Tifa, right? So that shame was like his driving force. And then when he couldn't make it as a soldier, what did he do with that shame? He kind of hid it and was like, he never contacted Tifa or, you know, anyone in Nibelheim. I think his mom knows, but that's the only person that knows because he was so ashamed that I was going to become a soldier, but he never did. So there's some shame in there. And shame is used very effectively in real world military. Right. It's like, if you can't do this, then you're that. Right. They mm. talk complete trash to them. Right. Shame is yeah. very powerful, especially in the military. I, I even have a quote from the book here that says, avoid shame at all costs. We're supposed to wear a, a mask of coolness to act as though everything is going all right and that everything is under control, even if it's not. And so this is the textbook saying this. This is kind of the best. Yeah. Um, and then I have uh, another thing from the book that we're talking about counseling military families. I think the book is called who outlines the characteristics of the warrior psyche. This includes a heroic stance, willpower to act danger, you know, in danger, action, heightness, awareness that comes in living in the presence of death, identification of action with force, a paranoid worldview, black and white thinking, repression of fear, compassion, and guilt, an obsession with rank and hierarchy, right? You can see all of this, especially with Cloud. Oppression of fear, compassion, right? He doesn't want to get close to anyone. His actions, what are his actions? You know, he carries around a sword and just destroys everything, right? He has an awareness of the presence of death, right? Because he's experienced it. He lost his mom. Tifa got hurt. So there's like a lot of these things on with, with, with Cloud. Obviously, he's heroic as well. Cloud is in a heroic stance. And of course, Cloud's obsession with rank, right? To make it to first class soldier. Yeah. And then the, the final part here, which I find interesting with the list of characteristics of the warrior psyche is the degrading of the feminine. I don't really uh, like agree with that, but you know, there's that part where Cloud, you know, we dress him up. So that, that's like an interesting point oh, to make. You know, yeah. My soldier guy, he's not supposed to do that, but he does. He breaks that yeah. conventional norm of the warrior society. And I just think that's cool. Yeah, I, for anyone who's not too familiar with this, um, in the this is both in the original and the remake game. Mm-hmm. There's a part where Cloud has to dress up in a dress and or just like in a uh, typically female identifying outfit, 
um, to try to to impress this like kind of mob leader guy. Type yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah, and to be a, to be a, a suitor, possibly like wife suitor. So. To save Tifa, right? To save Tifa. Yeah. So Cla- <laughs> I love how like Cloud wasn't able to save her like before, but then this is his way of saving her now yeah. is to like dress up and like use that to infiltrate the base to save her. Like it, it was cool. Yeah. So I, I like that, you know, that they break up that conventional norm of, you know, what a warrior society looks like, you know, and again, th- this is like a, a textbook from 2008. And then, so this is outdated, mm-hmm. right? I don't know if degrading the feminine sure. in the military is still a thing. It might be. I just find that interesting. You know, Claude goes through that and he doesn't care. You know, he's a little embarrassed at first, especially because Aerith is always like taking shots at him, right? Essentially, you know, just yeah, joking. Yeah, a very him. playful relationship. Yeah, yeah, it's it's playful. But, you know, Cloud will do what's necessary to protect those people that he cares about, right? Mm-hmm. I just think that's cool. So, yeah, so this is a little bit about the military, kind of the culture of the military. What does Zack and Cloud see in Shinra Power Company? You know, yeah. I mean, honor, right? I mean, you're going to get stronger. I just wanted to share with you guys a little bit of, you know, about that. Any thoughts on it? Awesome. Yeah, no. I'm glad that you did this, especially since there's probably not like enough for a full-on case study for for like Zach. So yeah, this was interesting just to see some like military and psychology concepts because military is a pretty big theme in this game, at least for the backgrounds of our main characters here. Right. So yeah, no, thank you. But yeah, like you said, Zach, Aerith, they got a history. So um, I need to tell you a bit about uh, Aerith's history, unless uh, there's something else you had for Zach. No, I felt like I did all, like I talked a lot about Zach. I just know that these characters, I really love these characters. They're really cool guys. But no, take it away with Aerith. Cool. Thank you. This is going to be our last character here, Aerith Gainsborough. She is kind of a, a very whimsical, friendly, bubbly person. You know, at the start of the game, she's a 22-year-old woman. And she is actually half human and half this other race called Setra. And the Setra are an ancient race that are granted powerful magic abilities. And Aerith is actually going to be the last of the Setra because they were all hunted or killed out or something. Or extinct or whatever. Whatever the reason was. I'd imagine that they were probably hunted because of their magical abilities. So people probably um, saw them as a threat or wanted to use them. Uh, Just making assumptions there, though. So um, before the events of Final Fantasy VII, we have Aerith, and she lived with her father and mother, but the father, his name was Gast, and he was killed by Professor Hojo, who we talked about earlier. He uh, ran Shinra's research, and he comes up multiple times in the Final Fantasy VII story. So uh, after Hojo killed Aerith's father, Hojo went on to capture Aerith and her mother, who is the pureblood Setra person um, named Ifalna. Ifalna, I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we have Aerith and Ifalna were captured by Hojo. So and there, Aerith and her mom were the subject to numerous experiments that were done by Shinra and by Hojo as they sought to like understand and harness the magic inside of their blood. So because of this, Aerith witnessed like a lot of tests that were done on Ifalna, and she saw these become like more and more intense, uh, eventually resulting in painkillers that need to be injected into the mom um, just to get through some of these tests. Fortunately for them, a scientist in the lab by the name of Faz Hicks helped Aerith and her mother escape, but her mom collapsed during the escape and died. So unfortunately, Aerith, you know, was seeking help and then ran into Elmira. 
I believe her name is pronounced, Elmira Gainsborough, who went on to adopt Aerith and took her into her own home. So Aerith eventually went on to live with the Gainsborough house, and Shinra did end up finding Aerith in this town that they were at, and then made a deal with Aerith's new mom, Elmira. And Elmira said that she would let them know if Aerith reveals the location of the promised land, um, which is what Shinra was really looking for. Uh, this promised land is a location that supposedly has like a large amount of Mako. Right. So Shinra wants to use that for themselves. And they believe that Aerith, because she's the last of the Citra, or maybe I'm saying that wrong. Is it Citra? Citra. Yeah. Um, because she's the last of the Citra, will somehow know the, this location. So um, because of this, this deal between Elmira and Shinra, Elmira became pretty restrictive with Aerith, uh, only allowed her to visit certain places, not watch TV due to her of being informed of like the events that are happening in the quote unquote outside world, meaning mm-hmm. like, outside of this town, outside this village. But of course, Aerith, you know, kind of snuck around, tried to make sure she wasn't caught and would visit random places throughout town. And she eventually met Zack when Zack fell into a church that Aerith would often visit near Mako Reactor 5. Similar to Cloud. And this is interesting. What? Similar to Cloud, right? That's yeah, how it yeah, yeah. Ex- exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, this this is pretty much uh, where Cloud, kind of how Cloud met Aerith as well. But yeah, for, for Aerith and Zack, it's funny because you said they dated, but on the wiki, it said that they never officially got to date. I guess there is some distinction that they made of like, oh, because they weren't boyfriend, girlfriend, then they didn't date, even though they were hanging out all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. This is probably just some weird semantic thing. Or it might be. Yeah, I remember Crisis relationships. Core. Crisis Core had a mission where I think you're like selling flowers with her or you're out in the town or something like that as Zack. Am I remembering it's, that wrong? I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I think you're you're probably remembering it correctly because my take on it was that they were totally dating, but they were never like officially boyfriend or girlfriend because Zach eventually had got shipped off to fight um, in the army. But yeah, so that's that's kind of what happens before we even meet Aerith. But now in the Final Fantasy VII remake, we first see her on the streets of Sector Eight. And Cloud spots her being attacked by Whispers. So Cloud kind of attracts the attention of these local guards accidentally because he draws his sword. He wants to defend Aerith against the Whispers. Then that doesn't go so well. So they end up just running away separately to get away from the the guards. Um, But then we see Aerith again when Cloud stumbles in through the roof of the church that she often frequents, just like Zack. But there, this time, we see a Shinra agent named Sang who tries to take her in. This time, Aerith and Cloud, well, Cloud eventually defends Aerith from being taken in, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then they get to know each other a bit better. They explore the Sector 5 slums, but Elmira does tell Cloud to like sneak out and never speak to Aerith again because she doesn't want Aerith to be endangered or whatever. She's being like a very protective mother. But Aerith does confess to Cloud that he reminds her of her first love, a.k.a. Zack. So she does go with him to Sector 7. And there they we see the sequence of where they visit this like wall market, which is like this illegal entertainment district. There they're trying to rescue Tifa by infiltrating um, Don Corneo's uh, ceremony of finding a bride. And then it's fun because... Tifa and later Cloud dress up to pose as possible suitors um, because they're they're really trying to get close to Don Corneo. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but they eventually do confront Corneo. This is where we learn first learn of Shinra's plan to drop the plate onto Sector 7. And yeah, th- so they eventually just like return to Sector 7, but they already find it under attack by the time they get back. So uh, Aerith at this point volunteers to go to the bar to help people evacuate there. But she was ultimately caught again by Shinra's agent saying... And this time, she doesn't want any trouble, so she does willingly go back with him to Professor Hojo's laboratory so that they could uh, continue running experiments. And that's why we later see Cloud Tifa and Barrett like, having to break in to the research lab to rescue Aerith again. And this time, they, they rescue her. I kind of already described it before of like how the whispers do interrupt, but eventually they defeat them. And then, yeah, then we kind of just see him continue out to Midgar. I kind of yada, yada, yada at the end of the be- of her story because it feels like we already spoke about it a couple times. But yeah, same thing with like Barrett and the president of Shinra and mm-hmm. Sephiroth appearing and all that. A lot of crossover. Yeah, yeah, a lot. Because yeah, these characters are constantly like hanging out with each other and they interact and they're going on missions together. So of course they're going to encounter some of the same stuff. But um, yeah, a bit about her personality. It's interesting because despite her traumatic upbringing, she has a rather like bubbly joyful compassionate personality she's just exuding this positivity and confidence and she like tries to inspire others to just continue and fight on when things are looking bleak and she she also has a rather optimistic outlook on life which you know totally defies all the trauma that she went through and you know she's she's pretty quick to make friends because of her extroversion she has the desire to see good in people and you know this ties in with her positive optimistic outlook on life um but you could also tell that probably because she was brought up in captivity she really enjoys her freedom so when her mom her her adopted mom elmira you know is trying to restrict her and keep her in again she finds ways to sneak out and like just go and continue to be free even though like the authority figures tell her no so i think that kind of sums up her story in the game so i also don't have a official diagnosis for her um, because she didn't really meet a lot of the requirements for them but i was still going to talk about it yeah with her case study unless there was something else you wanted to say about Aerith. no we just know that you know in the original you know she dies Right. I think you're aware of that, right? What'd you just No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> what? Twenty five year old spoiler? Or I don't know, nineteen ninety whatever. Yeah, ninety seven. No, it's a yeah. twenty seven year old spoiler almost. That's crazy. Yeah, no, I, it's funny because this is like the one thing I knew I, before I even played this game, that was the one thing I knew was that oh yeah, Aerith dies. But I forget. In the current, in Final Fantasy VII Remake, have we hit that point where she would die yet and we passed it? No, we haven't gotten No, there we have not. Okay, okay. So we're going to see what Rebirth does, which is the sequel yeah, to Final Fantasy Yeah, we're going to see what happens, which, right? Because now the whispers are supposedly gone. So, yeah. and also, I don't know if like the game alludes to like Aerith knowing what's going on or what can happen because she alludes to things that are like, she knows more than she, yeah. you know, and she leads on or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah, like, that's a good point what's gonna happen um i i i don't know i i actually did read about that i didn't write it down but yeah it does seem like she has some sort of uh ability kind of like zach and his headaches to see like i guess zach's headaches are more ptsd like whereas Aerith's is more like seeing the original timeline or like she she knows something about the original timeline and how it happens they haven't made that clear yet so we're just kind of speculating on how they're they're gonna do that for her official case study 
Aerith is a 22-year-old woman who is half human and half Citra. This grants her magic abilities and attunes her to the planet and the energy surrounding it. When she was a child, Aerith was held captive at a young age, along with her mother, and experimented on due to her Citra blood. Aerith and her mom eventually escaped with the help of a sympathetic researcher, but her mom dies during this uh, escape. Aerith was quickly found by another woman, Elmira, who adopted her and became her new mother. Growing up in Midgar, Aerith was restricted by her new mother and on what she was allowed to do and where she could go. This caused Aerith to sneak around wherever she could. Aerith eventually found a soldier named Zack and fell in love with him as they explored together. Zack was deployed out and left Aerith behind. Years later, Aerith eventually met Cloud on the streets of Sector 8. She later reunited with Cloud in a church she often visits, where Cloud saved her from capture. Aerith eventually meets up with the eco-terrorist group Avalanche and joins their cause in their fight against Shinra and saving the planet. Aerith also is captured again by Shinra, but is promptly freed by Avalanche when they attack Shinra's building. Aerith joins Barrett, Cloud, and Tifa in defeating the Whispers and leaves Midgar towards another adventure. So, now you're caught up. <laughs> for her case profile and and like i said she didn't really meet a lot of the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder even though that is what i i kind of initially put down um you know she does have she did have crazy exposure to trauma you know being experimented on held captive uh and witnessing her mother going through the same things and uh even dying in front of her yeah but that's kind of where it ends in terms of PTSD as I was going through the criteria and like reading everything there I'm like I don't I don't think she meets like any of these things you know she's like pretty well adjusted given her crazy traumatic background and like she she's not showing like presence of intrusive symptoms she's not avoiding the stimuli really I, I mean maybe a bit because sometimes she just won't I don't know if she really opened up about her history with cloud like during that time i don't really remember that happening there was that part where i think we see like a little bit of a i don't know if it's bullying going on but it's in the train yard the ghost yard right where she has like a oh right flashback of like the kids not finding her or like hide and seek or something like that or not that's right but she's really high functioning and like well adjusted right yeah so i can see yeah there's no need for a diagnosis right Mm -mm. so i guess i wanted to bring that up because this is like a perfect example of how some people will go through trauma, but then come out like not not everyone is going to have a you know disorder or like process that trauma the same. So, I mean, I know these are fictional characters and all, but um, we see Aerith here who goes through similar things of family members dying or being killed by Shinra, but she doesn't leave it with this harboring resentment and desire for revenge like Barrett does. Um, she still has this like positive outlook on life and just kind of continues about her day and continuing to live as who she is and not really affected by this. And if she is affected, she's doing a great job at hiding it because we haven't seen it yet. Or managing, right? Or coping, right? Or she might not even need any of our interventions that we learned in school, right? She might just be doing great. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like it. Exactly. We'll she see has in, her we'll own coping mechanisms. We'll see in rebirth. Yeah. <laughs> watch, watch all this go out the window once rebirth comes out. Uh, I cannot wait until we do our deep dive for that episode or for that game. So because of this, um, I did kind of talk a bit about, or I did want to talk a bit about a another similar site concept that tends to occur with people who are held captive and 
I don't know if this really has any sort of like uh, official psych diagnosis name. Um, I was going to talk about Stockholm syndrome, mm. which I couldn't find in the DSM. So I assume it is not an officially recognized thing, but I'm, you know, every, everyone, including therapists will know about it and know of symptoms of what those symptoms look like and how those symptoms, you know, are presented in like some actual recognized disorders such as PTSD. With that being said, Stockholm syndrome, for those who are unaware, it's, it's usually when the person who is like captive falls in love with the abuser or the captor, the person who captured them um, or is holding them hostage. And this, you know, can be seen as like a coping mechanism to try and get through this traumatic event. And uh, while we don't see this with Aerith, because we, A, uh, we don't see it in this game at all. We don't see her, her this background part in the game. Um, but then B, even in what we know of her background, we don't, she was too young, but we, we don't even see like her mom suffering from this. Uh, but we do see something that is not Stockholm Syndrome. It's almost like the reverse of it. Where Faz Hicks, who's the one who released them from being experimented on, at least according to this Wikipedia thing, or this wiki, fan wiki I read, Faz Hicks fell in love with Aerith's mom. And that is why he ultimately released them, because he felt bad doing these cruel things with him, to, to them. So I don't know of any sort of disorder that's like reverse Stockholm Syndrome. And I was trying to like Google it and look for it, in which like, the person who took someone hostage falls in love with the captor like i don't know if that's a thing maybe it's a it's a different diagnosis or something and i was just kind of having fun with this like mm. speculation of trying to like find something to fit Aerith's disorder so i'm really just talking out of my ass here but yeah. all <laughs> good, right i mean just cut this we're just, we're just wondering <laughs> yeah right so, yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting how Faz Hicks ended up falling in love with them, probably from spending all this time with them and then feeling bad for them. But uh, I think that kind of summarizes, does it for the uh, the psychological case study aspect of everything. Yeah. Was there, is there any like last words for uh, Final Fantasy VII before we move on to um, what else we've been talking about? Just that, you did, just this, this one memory i have with the game do you remember that part where you have to go up to shinra and you can take the elevator or the stairs did oh you take the God. stairs I, I did okay me too yeah i i wonder if that's a thing i wonder if that's like a psych thing so for people who are unaware it's like you have this choice like to get up to the top of the building you could either take this long flight of stairs in game which is literally just running upstairs or you could take an elevator but I feel like maybe it could be a gamer thing where we were presented with a choice and we chose the harder option because we thought it might reward us mm -hmm. in some way, when in reality, that didn't happen. And we literally just wasted time. Was there even an achievement for running? No, I was like, I was like, okay, because they're, they're, they're like, even the characters are like, well, it'll be quieter, right? We can sneak up on them. Right? And I'm like, okay, those are good points, right? But you hear like Barrett in the background just being miserable going up the stairs, and I'm like, oh, this doesn't feel good at all. No, yeah, it's like it's like sixty five flights of stairs or something like that. Yeah, and yeah, it's like it was something crazy. Yeah, and like it actually makes you do it. Like you have no, to like I... do it. Yeah. <laughs> I thought we would get like a fast forward button or something, but we don't. I know. I was that in the original as well. I don't think so. Or it might have been, but I don't think I don't remember it that that it was not that long. This totally seems like some developer joke. Just like, man, this would be funny if we just put this in and like give him the choice, but just eh, we're not gonna do anything with it. 
what a what a weird like quirk to that part and that part of all things too like why are you going to put it right there at this pivotal moment in which you're like trying to rescue your friend and like confront the i don't know the face of the the enemy this whole time it was funny no i'm glad you brought that up yeah Yeah, i was like we got to talk about this because i was like yeah this is this is like a moment where i was like did i get played like what the heck could we actually just take the elevator yeah you can i'm pretty sure you can and we just didn't (laughs) i guess that says something about us right i know once again i thought we thought we were gonna be rewarded at least i thought so i thought there'd be something for going through the harder route but that's not always the case. Let that be a life lesson to everybody. Sometimes the harder route is not the best choice. Right. Anyways, cool. Well, thank you all at least for staying this long for this podcast. I think that's going to conclude our like psych analysis for Final Fantasy VII Remake, mm-hmm. a game we both loved, and a game who's having a sequel very soon, and we are very excited to play. Oh, yeah. And we will most likely be doing an episode on that. I don't know when, but I know it's coming. But yeah, I guess with that being said... Tell me about what else you've been playing, Joe. So let's start with Tekken 8, right? Because I know we, yeah. we're going to get to Like a Dragon, and that might carry us through this podcast. But first of all, thank, thank you for anyone sticking around. You know, We're now going to get into the section where we just talk about what we've been playing. Mm-hmm. But if you're not interested in that, I understand You know, dipping out. You know, But thank you again. Um, but yeah, let's talk a little bit about Tekken 8. So, you know, again, I like saying I'm not the fighting game guy, right? But then again, (laughs) I just spent like 20 hours on on Tekken 8, right? And the reason why is because I have my brother playing and my cousin as well. Mm -hmm. So after we hit the gym or before sometimes, we'll just play Tekken 8. Yeah, we've just been playing tons of Tekken 8, you know. And it's a fighting game, right? And the way that I like to think about it, it's like it's interesting because it's different because punch, right? Like so square, triangle, X, circle that represents your limbs so mm-hmm. square is like mm-hmm. you know right punch or left punch or whatever and x is kick you know circles another kick you know and that kind of stuff um you have combos right you have inputs so it's you against some other person right so right now you know actually i think like maybe like 15 16 hours it was just us playing locally with each other mm-hmm. so fighting against each other we've just been doing that back to back you know like for hours there's something about just fighting games that just like you're getting better as you keep playing, right? You're going to lose a lot, right? Which going online will show you that. Going online will be like, hey, I'm pretty good. No, you're not. You're not good. Yeah. <laughs> um, those, there are way better people online who have been playing Tekken since Tekken 1 on PlayStation 1, right? This is like the eighth game. There's more games than that because there's like the spinoffs, like Tekken Tag Team, tag, whatever, right? But it's a fighting game. You pick a character, you know, go fight other characters. You improve, right? You lose, you win. It's just really fun. I mean, I, I put, you know, a lot of hours into it already, 20 hours with a, with a job and just other commitments, right? You just find that time on the weekend and you're like, all right, now it's time to play Tekken. And the funny thing is, like, when I put the game down, I'm like, all right, I, I think I'm Tekken out for today, right? Like, 30 yeah. minutes later, I'm like, damn, I want to play more Tekken. Wow. It's a really good, like, fighting game. It's, like, really, really good. Yeah, I just, I've been playing it. You know, I play King, yeah, which is, like, the Jaguar guy, right? And I think I mentioned, like... Mm. I made a costume for him as a monkey D Luffy, right? Give him a red shirt, a straw hat, some 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 blue cutoff shorts or whatever. Shorts, yeah. I'm just like grappling people. I'm just like doing grapples and just winning and and losing, of yeah. course, right? It's just so fun. It's it, it's it's a lot of fun. I've heard nothing but good things about that game. I really wish I had a bit more patience for the <laughs> fighting games because I would love to get into it too. I, I would. It sounds like you've mostly been playing like against your family have you tried any of the story mode or the adventure mode no i, so I hadn't even touched story mode i haven't even tried arcade mode 
or the, the the weird like yeah it's like an arcade story mode so yeah we've all just been playing locally for like i think like 17 18 hours and jumping online here and there when we get bored of fighting mm-hmm. each other because we get used to each other's like quirks right it's like oh he's gonna grab after this right oh he's gonna hit me yeah. with this i know how to react right so we sometimes we'll pick random characters to mix it up because like we get so used to each other and then med- mentality is like we kind of hate each other. We're like, why do you keep doing that? Like, stop it. You know? Um, but then you go online and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like do what you did to me and, and mess that dude up. Um, yeah. It's so, it's so funny. It's so funny, but yeah, no. So I hadn't even touched story mode or anything and we've already put 20 hours that's, into it. That's crazy. Dang. That, that sounds awesome. I, I do remember playing Tekken as a kid. I think Tekken two or three was okay. my favorite. Yeah. Um, whichever one had gone gone in it, the little dragon. Oh, okay. Little dinosaur guy who shot the fireballs. I don't know if he's still in the game or not. No, no. But oh man, yeah. bummer. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, hey, maybe when we hang out again, I'll I'll bring it in and you know teach you some fighting games. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> teach me, aka kick my ass for like thirty minutes. But no, I guess that's one way to learn. Yeah, no, that that's so cool. I I've heard great things about that. Uh adventure mode and the story mode i heard it was pretty fun too there's some podcasters i've been listening to who love tekken and like love fighting games in general but they don't play online or against other players they just play the story modes and stuff i see and yeah they were saying that this has been like their one of the favorites if not the favorite like fighting game like story mode i think in particular that arcade quest mode uh, they really enjoyed because it felt like it did a good job tutorializing the game um, as well as making it feel like a game since it's you didn't touch it at all right i played it in the demo so what essentially it's like okay. you're going through an arcade bracket right so you're it's like if you're going to locals in your own you know own neighborhood and fighting people mm-hmm. right so you become that like the Tekken fun. player, the best Tekken player you can, right? Or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I, I love that concept where it's like turning this real life thing into a video game or mm-hmm. like putting it into the video game. Maybe one day. Yeah. One day I'll try it. I mean, I, w- I will try it with you, but maybe one day I'll get into it. Yeah. You never know, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, fighting games are really cool because it's like you against an opponent, right? You're learning. It's a, it's a huge time commitment, though, especially if you want to learn. I'm not the best at fighting games. Like, no, like, I'll just throw a lot of time into them because they're fun. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we could try it out sometime soon. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd be down. I think the only fighting game where I've kind of tried to learn for like a week was Smash Bros. Like, oh, yeah. The most recent one. Yeah. But then my friend would just play as Joker and just like wipe the floor with me like every time. And then I just got <laughs> it just wasn't fun to, to come yeah. and lose. So it was hard to keep on playing. But I think that's difficult. Because if someone has a higher skill level than you, you're just going to get mopped. You're just going to get wiped. Yeah. And I watch like a lot of fighting game, like YouTubers and personalities. And the idea is like you need someone that's like on your level, like you're both learning. Mm-hmm. Having a rival helps. That's not better than like way better than you, but a little bit better than you because you're going to learn from them and they motivate you. So that's kind of the idea for fighting games. It's, it's a whole community type thing. Yeah. It seems very community driven of just like people trying to find their local fighting game meetups and stuff. And like, I, I love that. Uh, I love that concept behind the game. Yeah, it, it feels kind of like a board game or card game meetup in real life. Mm. Where you go to the card store and you try to find people to play with or play against. Right. Yeah, it's got that similar vibe. So I, I really respect it for that. Um, but one game that I have been obsessing with that you have as well, Like a Dragon Infinite Wealth. Oh, man, that's a really good game. I had no idea what I was missing. (laughs) 
yeah yeah i know i'm just like i think we were texting about it right it's like dude these games are so special right like these they're just yeah there's so much love and work put into them yeah and i, well, I mean what are your thoughts Kuska. yeah no i mean it's since this is my first uh quote-unquote yakuza game i know it's since been renamed since it's always been like a dragon in japanese titles but at first was a little put off from its kind of realism and making it seem like everything was a super serious and realistic. But once you get to Hawaii in the game, which is like five hours in, it feels like everything starts to get really goofy. Or I mean, even before that, you know, with, yeah. um, what's her name? The the crawfish oh, uh, on your shoulder. Nancy, Nancy right? Nancy. Yeah. She lives in like a clay <laughs> pot in your apartment, in Ichiban's yeah. apartment, right? And she makes noises. Like, what stuff. the yeah. hell is this? Yeah, it just comes out of nowhere. But no, I I really love that game. It has so much charm, and like everything feels so fun to play. This game has so many other mini games inside of it. It mm-hmm. feels like a lot of Pokemon inspired ones. You have like Pokemon Snap, um, and then taking pictures of sickos or of the sickos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then you know you have the uh, Dondoko Island, um, which is like their version of Animal Crossing. I, I haven't, haven't unlocked that. that one yet. Yeah, no, okay. yeah. I think someone said like ten hours in, but I'm like I'm about ten hours in right now. But I same spent way too much time doing the side quests. So same, same. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, on that note, that even the side quests feel so compelling, very well written. I immediately was like wanted to finish one of the side quest quest lines just because I wanted to know what happened to this character who's a, a Japanese tourist who fell in love for uh, someone a, a local native Hawaiian who is like scamming him for his money mm-hmm. and then you know he realizes that he's being scammed but he doesn't care because he likes the attention behind it and it makes him happy and it oh man I, I was not expecting kind of that in-depth commentary on certain social issues in this game in this yakuza game like i I don't know yeah Yeah. but but tell me your thoughts as like a a long time fan of the series yeah so i started from yakuza zero right and i've played all the mainline like i caught up right and it's Mm -hmm. this is a series that's very hard to catch up with because there's so many games so when they switched to like turn-based in seven i was like oh heck yeah i love turn-based right and now that they take it forward into eight, right? Now that, you know, and then this combat system has like a little circle, like a little radius you can walk around, right? Mm-hmm. That wasn't in seven. Um, so you can position enemies. You get a little green arrow. Yeah. And it tells you where the enemy is going to get launched at. So you can kind of line up enemies back to back and just knock them over like bowling pins just by a regular attack. And I'm like, that's so fun. I'm really enjoying this game. I'm 10 hours in. I'm doing a lot of the side quests. I think I mentioned I just unlocked Pound Mates, which is essentially like, Right. summons so yeah. you're calling a pound mate which is like a friend or something that you get from a sub quest or you meet on the street or whatever you pay like 50 bucks and they show up and they beat up the bad guys for you which is pretty funny <laughs> and they have like a cool cut scene when they get summoned sick it's so it's yeah. so cool so that's what i'm doing now are a lot of the side quests i i've been moving a little bit forward with the with the main story it does get serious like there is a part where like yeah. some guy like it's like a, it's like a homeless guy like he just the way that he dies is so messed up. I don't think you've gotten to that part. Oh, no, or I did. You? I okay. did. I was like, oh, my God. I was streaming that um, with my girlfriend, and I'm like, holy shit. Yeah, dude. I was, was like. brutal. Because you, you're going from silly fun times, haha, everything's funny. Yeah. Hawaii's so sunny, and it gets so serious, and I'm like, holy shit. Like, that's really this dark. Even like, I've played these games. He's crucified on the wall and, like, gutted, and it's it's it's, it's so intense. 
in the middle of like uh, a, uh, an alley in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah. Holy crap. Yeah. I was like, the tonal shift is wild. And this is like the <laughs> game I'm playing. I'm like, I know they are. But like, even that, I was like, holy crap. Like, I just got to that part last night. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, like the heck, right? It's a lot. Yeah. It's I was like, dang. Like, and, and those parts wrote me in as well. Cause it's like, oh yeah, this is a serious game. Right. But then you're out here like, Nancy just fell in love with like a hermit crab and we have to find her. I don't know how to do something with that side quest. Oh, is, that, is that what's happening right now? Yeah. <laughs> and if, cause I know she's a summon. She, she becomes a pound mate summon, right? So she rides oh. on the hermit crab into battle, right? So it's, it's like that kind of side quest where like some of the side quests will reward you with, with like extra things that, you know, they're like, Oh cool. This makes the game a little bit more wacky or a little bit more fun because it's like a, it's a crawfish coming to your rescue. Yeah. 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 That's crazy. Um, I do like how the side quests are a bit more, like you just said, like just wacky and weird, not trying to be as serious as the main quest. And even the seriousness of the main quest does still hit pretty mm-hmm. well. Oh, yeah. Like I, I still feel very invested in trying to find out what happened to uh, Ichiban's mom right now. Like what's going on there. Uh, I like how they're introducing like this other like local gang, Hawaiian gang, the Barracudas and how they like roam the streets at night. Like, claiming their territory on monday at 10 p.m so specific yeah right yeah <laughs> what is that oh man i'm like i went to hawaii last year i don't think i was walking around at 10 p.m we know like, next time <laughs> yeah oh god i know it it does like you know it's totally over exaggerating the violence and everything uh of course because it's trying to you know make the gameplay compelling of like there's not like sh- <laughs> these sketchy people are threatening people like every 10 feet on a block in hawaii but that's kind of how it's depicted here in the game yeah it low-key just kind of made me want to go back i'm like missing hawaii <laughs> oh yeah no i was like man maybe i should go to hawaii and then i see all this serious shit happen and i'm like oh maybe not because <laughs> they, they're, they're like saying real world stuff like hey the homeless population is like really high we think other states are selling the homeless population here and i'm like oh you know what i never thought about hawaii in that way that is a very like pricey place to live as well huh they're like throwing like real world like informing us and i think that's something i appreciate yeah. for this series they yeah. give me real info yeah. not everything's real info but you know they throw some stuff in there yeah yeah totally um i mean we we see it a lot in this game they have a lot of pretty interesting things to say about like a lot of social issues uh i mean the homelessness population was like one of them the other one that i've noticed is the uh, i guess like the treatment of felons and prisoners and stuff like that oh, in this case yeah. like the ex-yakuza i mean you know we see ichiban he starts off as just like a an employee at a an employment agency that's trying to seek like jobs for other people and um you know, all he wants, and he, he kind of specializes in helping out former Yakuza members, like find jobs that are tailored to them because the rest of society has kind of given up on them. Mm-hmm. It stood out to me because it like kind of shows how a failure of like the society and government to like force a lot of these people into going to crime to make ends meet and to live. Um, and then once they like try to seek help and seek and reform their ways or whatever they uh they're just kind of cast aside and like yeah. marked with a red x and like told that they can't do this or own a cell phone in like five years after their yeah the five-year clause or, or, right yeah and stuff like that so yeah it was really interesting and they're kind of funny with their commentary against the police as well in this game uh, i forgot which side quest it was where even the police 
there's like a policeman who you the character crosses like legally in a crosswalk but he's like hey did you just jaywalk and he was like oh i don't know i don't think so but i was wasn't really looking at my feet so maybe and the police was like okay i'll let it slide this time but maybe consider donating to the police fund and he literally pulls out like a oh, box donation box on yeah top. yeah donation box um or even when ichiban was like captured initially and he's like being interrogated by the cops and then um the cop is like you're kind of a john doe here you have nothing uh you have no passport no id no money and there's a bunch of uh like mysterious crimes that we haven't cold cases right cold cases yeah so we're gonna pin them on you you're gonna be the fall guy for this even though we know you didn't do it, but we need somebody so that they even say like in the game, like so that the public perception is like sees them in a better way or something like sees them as like effective. Yeah. I don't know. That just kind of stuck out to me, their commentary on the social issues. And I, I, I know we're going to be talking about this game as well. I think for like a, Oh yeah. The podcast is going to hear a lot about like a dragon. Like this game is huge. Right. I, I even wanted to say, you know, with Ichiban getting like caught, right? I was like, how is he gonna get out of this? Yeah. He legit just assaults an officer and I'm like like he just hits him and like headbutts him, right? And runs off. Yeah. And I'm like, I was watching a streamer and he's like, that is inaccurate. Why are they not shooting <laughs> Ichiban? And I'm like, Yeah, yeah you know what? I You're know. right. Like how, what? Look at that too. Yeah. <laughs> I was like I was like, Yeah, yeah, go ahead. And I was like, Okay, so he gets he he gets like, you know, saved by Kiryu, which is like another main character from the other game. Mm-hmm. And he's all like, you just committed a felony, right? And then like the rest of the game, I don't even think the cops are even looking for Ichiban anymore, right? Like, you're just walking around Hawaii, just doing side quests, getting Nancy the crawfish, helping her with her love problem or whatever. And I'm like, all right, I guess, guys. But, you know, whatever. Easy. Silly. I know. Yeah, yeah. It's that, that dichotomy, that uh, kind of jarring switch between the super serious and then the the funny silly whimsical stuff but it does it so well that you don't feel like either side is lacking it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like you know they just threw one of those things in just because it, it really feels like they took a lot of time and care into everything in this game damn i yeah i was like this morning i uh ended up playing pal world for uh, like a couple hours with a friend because he it was his first time playing all right you were telling me that i just wanted to uh kind of help him set up the base and like play the game with him but i was also just thinking like damn i really want to play yakuza right now like this is it's it's addicting so good it is and there's so much left to do right i'm wondering if we're gonna hit a point where like oh dude i'm burnt out yeah. yeah, I'm kind of no, worried I think about 80 that. hours is around what really? people said is like the main when they were done with the game. The time played was like 80 hours. So I don't know. Um, that's a lot. That's a long game. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the next major release for me is going to be Final Fantasy seven Rebirth. So there's no way I'm going to be done before that. No way. Yeah. I mean, not if you start persona 3 as oh, well yeah. i installed it i mean i got the collector's yeah. edition and everything so it's it's ready to go so I, i'm thinking of just like hey one week i'm gonna be working on this game and the other week i'll be working on this game and then i'll just throw in rebirth in there Damn. somehow this, this is gonna carry me until summer i believe it i think so too i mean then what are you gonna do when dragon's dogma 2 comes out i think i'm gonna wait for March. a price drop <laughs> not gonna lie because i'm like dude i have too many okay. games and not enough time no way yeah yeah I know. I, I kind of feel that right now, too. I, I don't think I'm buying anything else until then. I might play Princess Peach Showtime if Ooh, it reviews well. Yeah. Yeah. I, it really depends on the reviews for that one because I don't really want to drop money on a platform that doesn't play, platformer that doesn't play well. But we'll, mm-hmm. we'll see. And then we're getting Thousand Year Door. 
right? The remake. That's oh this God. year. Uh, and I'm like, dude, no, stop. Like, come on. Stop. I don't have enough time. I have the money. I don't have the time, though. Yeah. I know. Bane of being an adult. You know, speaking of other games, like, I still hear people, like, going off on Prince of Persia. And I still oh, yeah. would like to play it. Yeah. Like, people are saying, like, this is might be one of the best Metroidvania games of all time. I, I don't know. I, I played the demo and like, yeah, this is fine. But I didn't see like what they saw just yet. Mm. One interesting thing they kept on saying, though, is that the combat in that game reminded them of a fighting game. It has as much depth as a fighting game. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay, interesting. In terms of just like, yeah, I know. So I was like, huh, maybe Joe will get appealed to it through that <laughs> that way. Yeah. So that's just another game that I want to play. Don't have the time for Immortals of Avium is another one because I heard an interview with the developer. Uh, do you remember that game at all? No. Uh, I came out a few months ago. It, it was branded as like the Call of Duty with magic. Sounds where familiar. It's like a first person shooter, but you have spells and stuff. Oh, this was in the showcase recently, right? Uh, uh Maybe last year's showcase. Okay. Because this, there... this, this came out, I think, in... It came out last year for sure. Yeah, let me look it up. Because there was something in the showcase that caught my interest recently. This came out in August. Avowed, I think the name was? Avowed. Avowed. Oh, Avowed. Avowed. Yeah, yeah that's the one I was showcase. thinking about. I, I know. It, it kind of has a similar name-ish to it. But yeah, this game, Immortals of Avium, didn't do well. And uh, I listened to a very interesting like interview with the developer, lead developer of this game. And he talked about how... You know, just how he put his heart and soul into this and how he felt like being branded as the uh, Call of Duty with magic was like not very accurate to what he thought the game was about and um, how the game flopped on release. And so he had to like they had to do a bunch of layoffs and stuff because of it. But of course, now um, that the game is like half off, I think it's $30 as opposed to 70. um, It is selling very well. Okay. And its initial reviews were good, too, but there weren't many of them. Um, so it wasn't really like a critical acclaim type of deal. But yeah, just the way he was talking about it, I really want to give it a shot, especially since it's like on sale right now. And yeah, it looks okay. like it's almost six months old. Okay, that's not too old. Okay. Cool. Well, thank you all so much for listening. <laughs> Whoever has made it this far, I, I really commend you. Um, do something to let us know you listen to this whole thing. And I feel like we got <laughs> we got to reward somebody for, for being a loyal uh, listener at this point. So uh, do you want to tell them what our next game is going to be? Okay, let's do it. Yeah, so our next game is going to be Dead Space. So we're going to be focusing on Isaac Clarke, and we're going to do a little bit something different. So mm-hmm. of course we're going to do the case mm-hmm. study, right? Uh, me and Brandon were talking about we might not want to do case studies each time, right? It'll get repetitive. But for this one, we're thinking about doing, of course, a case study, but a treatment plan, right? And kind of uh, my experience as an associate therapist, right? What that would look like with someone like Isaac Clarke. So I'm sure you're going to hear about PTSD again. You know, mm-hmm. but uh, we're going to we're going to mix it up and we'll yeah. see what we do continuing forward like you know, how to mix things up so it doesn't get too stale. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, another thing I would like to talk about maybe during that episode, maybe not, maybe in a future one is how like some of the psychology behind some of the game design uh, aspects, uh, especially in a horror game um, when a lot of thought needs to go into like how to create this atmosphere that scares the player when you know the player is obviously safe at home playing a video game and not in this real world so what do you do to draw that player into the game to make them feel like they're there and um yeah i don't know just something to talk about for the next episode but yeah thank you all again do you have any uh last words for them joe no i mean if you've listened this far just you know thank you 
Thank you for that. I appreciate every listener and being able to put all these words, you know, into something that's productive. We have so much to say. I mean, we're just gushing about Like a Dragon and had so much to say about Final Fantasy VII, which I'm sure we could have covered way more stuff. But no, thank you. All right, y'all. Thank you again. See you soon. All right.